Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You've got a prime minister that takes a knee one day and then takes indigenous kids to court the next. If he thinks he can threaten Canadians with another election in 18 months, the Conservative Party will be ready. Thank you, Purple Army. What I didn't realize at the time is that I was breaking a glass ceiling that was going to fall on my head. Qu'est-ce que c'était cette histoire? Pourquoi avoir interrompu mon barbecue? You are sending us back to work with a clear mandate to get Canada through this pandemic and to the brighter days ahead. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and the willful misunderstandings this confederation was built on. Today, the results are in. Albertans want to opt out of federal equalization payments. What are they, and what does that mean for federal-provincial relations generally? We'll get into the political fallout. And last week, the Bank of Canada said that inflation is going to keep going up. Is inflation going to be a long-term problem for Canada to deal with? Joining me this week, another Mantle. We've got Jason Markasoff, a contributor at McLean's. Welcome back to your second Mantle. <laughs> We've got Murad Hamadi, reporter at The Logic. Hi. And Drew Brown, editor-in-chief of The Independent. Welcome back. Oh, thank you. Can I please state for the record, that wasn't my attempt to be have a manly grunt, not uh, any sort of uh, audio constipation or anything like that. <laughs> So let's talk about provincial equalization payments. What are they and why were Albertans having a vote about it last month? Well, the Canadian government is constitutionally obligated to provide essential public services of reasonable quality and fair economic development to all Canadians. To do that, the federal government uses a complicated formula to calculate how much money each province should get based on how much revenue they can raise themselves. The provinces that earn more, known as the have provinces, contribute a bigger share to the bucket that the federal government splits up to deliver to poorer or have not provinces in order to narrow the gap. Equalization payments account for about 5.5% of the Canadian government's budget. Approximately $450 billion has been transferred over the past 63 years. In that time, Alberta has only received about 0.02% of all transfers. Quebec has received 52.1%. Meanwhile, Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick rely quite heavily on equalization to finance their public services. The issue of who funds equalization and who does or does not receive is a hot political one in our country. It boils down to fairness and equality in the Confederation, and that's why we're talking about it today. Last week, during its election, Alberta voted on whether it wanted to bow out of the federal equalization program. The question on the referendum read, 
Should Section 36 2 of the Constitution Act of 1982, Parliament and the Government of Canada's commitment to the principle of making equalization payments, be removed from the Constitution? Of the roughly 1 million Albertans who voted in this referendum, almost 62% said yes, but only a third of registered voters showed up, so that's not great. Jason, you are our resident Albertan. Jason Kenney has made a big deal about the results. He said this is a, quote, powerful statement to the federal government and that, quote, Albertans are demanding to be respected. So what's going on? Is this really important to Albertans? Yes and no. This is an emotional thing. Uh, Albertans have been fed since the Reform Party days and probably going back longer, this idea that Alberta is getting fleeced by the rest of the provinces, including Quebec. And that's because there are all these transfers that go into equalization and Quebec and other poor provinces get so much and Alberta does not get it. Well, Alberta doesn't get it because it doesn't need equalization and it doesn't need support to fund its programs. Alberta has a lot of money because Albertans are wealthy. And it's important to say that it's Albertans that are wealthy, not Alberta that is wealthy, because a long-time myth has been perpetuated. They think that it's that Alberta every year has to cut a giant check worth several billions of dollars to the provinces of Quebec and some of the smaller loser provinces because they don't like Alberta's oil. But of course, it's not Alberta cutting a giant check. It's federal tax dollars that everybody pays, you know, Ontarians, Quebecois, Prince Edward Islanders pay all these federal taxes and a bunch of them go back through equalization. But Alberta has this long-time complaint that, well, we send all this money and we don't get this money back in, in the same proportion. So Albertans need a fair deal. Well, you know, think about Toronto. If, you know, if people in Rosedale or the other um, very wealthy neighborhoods I've forgotten about they pay way more taxes than they get back in services, too, because they're really wealthy. Nobody is saying, uh, you know, Bridal Path needs a fair deal. Can I ask very quickly, like, we know Jason Kenney's popularity is suffering right now. So was this referendum more to do with fixing that? I would say, that, I mean, it's it's hard to really say yes or no to uh, to that. First of all, this, this deep-seatedness is very, very deep. And I, I will agree with Jason Kenney that... Um, even though there was pretty low turnout in this municipal election, that's because turnout generally is low in municipal elections. And he's probably right that if there was a federal election, they would have gotten probably the same share, uh, 60, what is it, 62% versus 38%. Yes, this helps Jason Kenney's approval, but this idea stems from way back when he was starting his leadership campaign back in uh, 2019 and before. Mm-hmm. It well predates uh, his more recent bump skid now. He's just fulfilling an election promise by putting out this profoundly stupid referendum, and I'll explain the profoundly stupid stuff later on. <laughs> so I do want to understand the political tensions here. So, so Drew, Newfoundland and Labrador doesn't get equalization payments, but some might argue that they should because unemployment is pretty high, almost 14% in 2020, and wages are on average lower. So what is the sense of equalization in your province? All right. Well, first, I'm going to have to confess that I don't have a full understanding of the black box known as the equalization formula. But I do know that Newfoundland and Labrador currently uh, pays into it because it's all based around like natural resource revenues in the province versus like all the other stuff that might necessarily uh, indicate we probably should be getting some more transfer payments from the federal government. I know in the last provincial election, the uh, 
progressive conservative party kind of also raised the question of like, maybe we should look at the equalization formula. Maybe they may have also floated the referendum idea. You know, they like to take ideas from wherever you can get them when you're losing an election. <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's definitely sort of a sense that like the formula is not really working because Newfoundland very desperately needs the money and we're not getting it. And instead it's all going to Quebec. I mean, it's the same sort of like neurosis that Alberta has about like, why is Quebec taking our money? which is sort of like a willful misunderstanding of how equalization kind of works, right? But uh, yeah, I think there's definitely some shared grievances on both the east and west parts of the country um, over this question right now. Willful misunderstanding is basically the basis of confederation. Yes. Like, it's how this entire country works. Isn't that, the, isn't that the Latin, what the Latin slogan means? But what is, uh, sorry, Drew, can I ask you to expand, like, what is the willful misunderstanding about this? Like, Quebec does get more money, but that's because they don't have as many natural resource revenue. Is that it? I mean, I think that's a big part of it. It's also sort of this idea that, like, Quebec gets, like, kind of the lion's share of equalization, even though they actually don't, like, on a per capita basis, um, they don't get the most share of equalization, right? That does go to the uh, quote-unquote loser provinces in the Maritimes. <laughs> It should have affected more of an Alberta accent when I said it. <laughs> I, I do not think you're a loser province. Charlottetown, PEI, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, you're nice. <laughs> yeah, they're very nice. And nice guys finish last. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a lot of like Quebec bashing, fear of a French power type, really weird old Francophobia. Quebec definitely has a reasonably good deal in the asymmetrical federation that we call Canada. But yeah, I think the sort of framing that like they're kind of this money sucking parasite that thrives off the hard work of people on the oil rigs in the West and the East Coast is not necessarily a true picture of how transfer payments in Canada work. And it's kind of more of like a dog whistle thing for people who either don't understand how this works or who are like willfully misunderstanding it, um, which I think is the case in Jason Kenney's Alberta. So, Murad, you're in Ottawa where Prime Minister Trudeau has said that he's unimpressed with Jason Kenney right now. He said there's something that has always struck me as incredibly political about what Mr. Kenney has gone around stoking up concerns around equalization. Given the current formula for equalization uh, that was actually put in place and created by government in which Mr. Kenney sat around the cabinet table. So is Prime Minister Trudeau just dismissing the concerns about, like, valid concerns about this program? Or do you think this is just going to be another political fight that is meaningless? You know, the thing with the referenda is that there is no legal force to this referendum. There are two factors here. You know, the prime minister isn't just dealing with one province. He's dealing with 10 provinces, three territories, and whoever else happens to be shouting at him on any given day. <laughs> you can't just tweak the Alberta section of equalization or transfer payments. And, you know, there's the full set of transfer payments we have now around health and various other things. Uh, the government is proposing now to add more transfer payments as part of its major set of programming that it laid out in the budget and in the election. So, you know, childcare is going to become another uh, way in which revenue, uh, tax revenue flows from, well, tax or debt revenue, depending on how they fund it, goes from uh, Ottawa to the provinces. There's now talk about mental health transfers, so on and so forth. All of this is going to get wrapped up in making deals on each of those individual programs. This is a, a convoluted way of saying the prime minister has to keep 13 premiers happy. Of those, the one he can probably pretty reliably in, a, in the world of partisan politics, say, is going to take another shot at him, whether or not he accedes on this issue. It's Jason Kenney. You know, he got his two ministers in Alberta this election. 
equalization changes or no equalization changes? Does he need to keep Premier Kenny happy for the next two years before the next election cycle? Probably not. So, Jason, so much of the criticism of this program comes from premiers of struggling, energy-rich provinces that do not receive equalization. But do they actually impoverish Alberta? Like, is Alberta really hurting because it's not getting money from the government? Does equalization actually really screw the West to pay for the rest? A phrase that I read in a study? You know, a a very narrow uh, look at it is, but that's kind of tantamount to saying that why do the rich pay more taxes? Mm. The question that was on the referendum, the question that Albertans said yes to, is actually tangential to what Alberta actually wants. The question was, do you want to eliminate equalization from the Constitution? Mm -hmm. Alberta doesn't want equalization out of the Constitution. They just want it more fair somehow to Alberta. Either we get more money or we get less or Quebec has to, you know, tap its heels and grovel to Alberta once, you know, every quarter to get its money. But it was based on this weird false premise that by putting forward this referendum and having this constitutional amendment on the table, it will force... Ottawa to go to the table and negotiate something with all the provinces. Justin Trudeau was very canny in the way way he responded because he called Alberta on its bluff. Trudeau said, well, you know what? I don't think a lot of the provinces actually want to remove equalization of the Constitution. And guess what? That includes Alberta. So it's a goofy thing. And Jason Kenney thought he was going to have all this leverage that this was going to force the federal government to the table. But it doesn't force much. So what kind of conversations do we need to have to figure this out, right? Because I'm thinking of other big policy tools we're talking about lately that also require the federal government to fairly balance economic growth and development of all provinces. I'm thinking about the carbon price. I'm thinking about federal health transfers, which was a major election issue. All political issues like equalization that will require the federal government to amend how much money each province gets based on sort of some sort of standard or requirement that they come up with. So what kind of conversations do we need to have to figure out how to do this better? That is such a good question because you're right. There is an important conversation to be had about equalization. The problem is that there are only about 10 people in Ottawa and four economists in Calgary who understand how this program works. There are ways you can expand this and improve it and reform it. But Alberta's anger and the incoherent rage coming forth from my province um, makes people reluctant to overhaul it entirely. You should overhaul it. Trudeau is actually really daft in saying that this is the same formula that Conservatives put in, because that was put in almost a decade ago. And This is a very complex country, and the whole economics of the province and the federation has changed a lot in the last decade. So we do need a change. We shouldn't just be sitting on what conservatives did 10 years ago. Drew, do you agree? Do you think it needs to be overhauled? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely worth, like, looking into, I mean, like Jason said, things have changed a lot since I think they changed the formula in 2008, 2009. Um, like, you know, the fact, like, again, uh, I mean, I, I do have a lot of sympathy for the fact that, like, the fact that, like, Newfoundland and Labrador is paying into equalization, or at least not receiving the payments, does seem a little bit backwards, considering the general state of the economy here. But, like, that part of it is also, like, that's a political question, right? Like, the, the federal government and the provinces can sit down and, and negotiate this without opening the constitutional side of the question, right? Like, that's that's what doesn't make any sense, really, about this referendum, because what Jason Kenney apparently wants to do, which is, you know, like rejig the equalization formula to be more fair or whatever, um, is totally unconnected from the sort of like the constitutional principle that like equalization exists and is a good thing in principle. 
which is also the hardest part to change because changing the Canadian constitution is something that fundamental requires so much like heavy lifting and agreement between so many disagreeing provinces that every time we try to open the constitution and make fundamental changes like this, it nearly like destroys the country, which is the main reason why people have generally like avoided this for the last 25 to 30 years. Um, yeah, I don't know. It is worth revisiting. And I think like that basic principle is sound, but the, the Alberta referendum, this whole, like, it's a weird, like political stunt that seems more about drumming up this sort of frothing, incoherent rage that alienates the rest of the country and is actually runs counter to what Jason Kenney is ostensibly trying to accomplish. It is a weird spectacle. And I think Graham Thompson put it best when he wrote in iPolitics the other day that, uh, Politically speaking, you have to think that Jason Kenney is spinning in his shallow grave because that's kind of what it looks like. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Murad, jump in here. Like, what does Ottawa need to do? I mean, I can only think of one big meeting between provinces and federal government. And that was in 2015 when they came together to talk about the carbon price. And we all know how that ended up. So is there a future where you see this constructive conversation happening? Can my answer just be Drew Brown's deep sigh from a couple of minutes ago? <laughs> Uh, so two points I'd like to make here. One, I think, and I've said this before, we fundamentally overrate the um, utility of having everyone come around a large table and bash issues out. You know, there are first minister's meetings uh, involving all of the premiers and the prime minister. Justin Trudeau was very keen on them at the beginning of his time in office. And, you know, it, the pandemic is a weird situation because they did a ton of those, but they were like very pandemic response focused as opposed to the sort of annual or biannual gab fests that are more sort of traditional in Canadian history, how much did any of those accomplish? I mean, you have 13 premiers with specific local issues uh, that they need to deal with. You know, if you get those people around the table, what's the guarantee that the conversation is about Alberta and equalization as opposed to Premier Legault hijacking the conversation to talk about healthcare transfers, which is his sort of uh, bone to pick with Ottawa du jour. Really what this is, is a whole bunch of specific programs and specific transfers. And those are all negotiated on different cycles. You know, the healthcare transfers are negotiated on a specific cycle. Childcare will now be negotiated on a specific cycle. Any new mental health transfer will be training is, you know, all of these are individual programs. Uh, and obviously they add up to this bigger issue, but we're not super good as a country. And, and frankly, like what country in 2021 is at dealing with these like fundamental questions of the structure of our government and the, the nature of our democracy and the, the way that our country works. Like <laughs> the way we deal with problems in sort of 2021 is on a program by program basis in deep technical negotiations. It's how we're dealing with like tax issues. It's how we deal with all of this shit. If there are points to be made or points of taxation revenue to be won here and there, they're probably going to be won with individual program negotiations. I think if you get everyone around a table, what you have is a recipe for a shouting match, not a recipe for amending the Constitution. A point of order, Madam Speaker. What is your point of order, Jason? There are too many cabinet portfolios. Please eliminate 17 or so. <laughs> Why 17? Seventeen is my random number. Actually, I, I haven't gone through it and looked at how many uh, are not real ministries, but there are a lot of them are not real ministries. There is a minister of tourism. There is a minister of official languages as a standalone. There is a minister of families. There is a minister of rural economic development. Sorry, Goody Hutchings. And these are not ministries. These individuals, these ministers, are not heads of departments. 
there are only a handful of departments in Canada. There's defense, that's a full ministry. There's innovation science, the old industry. There's foreign affairs, there's finance, there's heritage. Up until I think it was 2000 and affairs 2015, 2019, but those were just called Minister of State. Those were junior ministries and explicitly junior ministries that are subordinate to somebody who actually runs a department, like the Minister of Industry. Like the official language is, is a minister who answers to the Ministry of Canadian Heritage, where official languages sits. Up until Trudeau came in, these were called Ministers of State or Secretaries of State, and they were clearly junior ministers. But what happened was when Trudeau assigned his first cabinet and it was clear that a bunch of the jobs he gave to women were actually these junior ministries, ministers of state, they actually all got a promotion to full-fledged ministers. And now we completely obscure it to the point where you could not tell me if there is a real ministry of seniors or minister of families and infrastructure and communities or whatever. It's obscured. Like a lot of these guys, Randy Boissonneau, the minister for Alberta, and uh, Dan Vandal, the minister for Manitoba, do not have ministries. They should not really be called full-fledged cabinet ministers. There's not a department of tourism. So therefore, we should not call these people ministers. Very legit gripe. Not a point of order, though. (laughs) Madam Speaker, I have a point of order that is similar to Jason's point of order. What is your point of order, Murad? I wanted to note that Justin Trudeau has done a sneaky thing in his cabinet construction. So there are regional development agencies. Uh, These are federal entities that give out money to uh, local businesses and community projects and the like in various parts of the country. There used to be five a decade ago. There are now seven. Uh, They're multiplying. In 2015, when the Liberals won office, they consolidated all of them under a single minister, Navdi Paines, whose writing happens to be in the GTA, which is a place that doesn't need economic development, at least not the way that some of the other regions supposedly do. And it was supposed to be this great thing where they were going to cut down on the pork barrel projects, you know, less funding for random overbuilt community centers just so that they could show they were doing something, more funding for actually helping communities develop their economies and help businesses uh, export and scale up and do all of the wonderful things that our economy needs. Um, This was a line that liberals sold me solidly for six years. And in this cabinet, we went back to having one minister per economic development agency. Uh, They're all ministers now. So uh, if Jason wants to, um, you know, uh, do his cutting, that's seven right there. (laughs) Ten more to go. Not a point of order, but boy, is this episode super nerdy and I am here for it. (laughs) Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Drew? I would actually like to disagree strongly with both uh, previous speakers and think that they should actually expand cabinet. I think everybody who gets elected should have a cabinet post. I think it's only fair. Um, I think we should hand them out like participation trophies. So, you know, everybody gets to be included in the important deliberations that the cabinet makes, which are totally real and not just kind of a front place for whatever the PMO dictates that the cabinet will then represent to the rest of the country. Not a point of order, but say it with me, you guys. Bring back middle class prosperity. Bring back middle class prosperity. (laughs) Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, 
For the last several months, the Bank of Canada has told us that high inflation was something that we would see till the end of 2021. They repeatedly told us it was temporary. Transitory is the word they used. That it was caused by pandemic-related things like supply chain issues and labor market contractions. That shifted suddenly and without notice last week when Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem said that high inflation was going to be here for much longer than expected. Sometime in the middle quarters of 2022, he said. Inflation will near 5% by the end of the year, according to his projections. The central bank said this is due to, and I'm quoting, shortages of manufacturing inputs, transportation bottlenecks, the difficulties matching jobs to workers are limiting the economy's productive capacity. These issues, according to Tiff Macklem, are proving to be more complicated. And that's a quote. Last week's announcement was the sixth consecutive month that headline inflation has clocked in above the Bank of Canada's target range of between 1% and 3%. It also followed similar announcements by the Bank of England and the Bank of Australia, who both said that inflation was no longer transitory. On one hand, economists are ringing alarm bells that this is a potential runaway train. Others are saying this is still an issue part of the ongoing COVID moment. So, Murad, inflation means things will become more expensive, less affordable, and your savings will be worth less. So what's your read of our high inflation problem? Is it short or long term? How worried should we all be? So there's an interesting political fight happening. I say fight. It's more like uh, uh, sort of one person shouting from outside the building. That one person is Pierre Polyev, a, a sort of conservative frontbencher whose claim is that this is the result of basically the Bank of Canada um, buying Canadian government bonds in order to pay for the stimulus spending that happened during the pandemic. So basically the government did a bunch of spending on programs so that it could keep the economy afloat. And the conservative claim, which is sort of localized to Polyev, but they've all sort of hitched their wagons to is you know, this is uh, this is fueling inflation. There don't seem to be that many economists that think that's true out in the world. Um, the idea is basically, you know, yes, the government has spent quite a bit of money, but quantitative easing, which is the thing where the bank buys these bonds, uh, is certainly not novel. It's something happening all over the world. It's not unique to Canada. It's not nefarious in any, any way. And in fact, this last cycle, the bank is signaled that it's going to stop doing it. The reason why I'm telling you any of this or any of this matters is like there's two ways inflation can happen, right? Inflation basically happens when there's either too few goods or too much money. So people have a lot of money in their pockets or their bank accounts. I don't think anyone actually carries cash these days. And uh, they are trying to buy a limited number of goods and services. Uh, So basic supply and demand, the goods or services get more expensive. The claim from people who think the Bank of Canada is mismanaging this is the problems on the money supply side. So there's too much money sloshing around. Uh, What it looks like is actually the problem is probably on the the supply side. So, you know, you can't buy a whatever fridge, washing machine, car right now in anything less than a few months because they're either they're stuck in shipping containers at some port or they're stuck on some ship across the ocean, or they're stuck in some port uh, on the other side of the world. They're not moving. And because they're not moving, they're not getting here and everybody's backed up. So the prices start to go up. 
That's one factor. The other factor is we don't make shit in this country anymore or not a ton of shit or on this continent. And also historically for years now, there's been a problem, particularly in Canada, business under investing in new capacity, in uh, R&D and all kinds of things. So, you know, you can't just spin up a factory to make semiconductors that go into all of the consumer electronics that people are trying to buy. That takes years and billions of dollars. The problem started a while ago. And so all of that means that it's harder to get stuff, the price of stuff goes up, you get inflation. One thing that I think is important here is that the bank has an inflation range of 1% to 3% that it tries to hit. And people sometimes treat the top end of that range as a maximum i.e. if we're anywhere over this 3% number, things are really, really bad. Well, the thing with the range is that sometimes we're under the range and sometimes we're over the range. And there's a decent conversation happening right now because the Bank of Canada's mandate is up for review about whether the bank's target should be within 1% to 3% at any given time, like it should never be below this or above this, or whether they should try and hit that on the average over time. And, you know, we had a little bit of deflation at the start of the pandemic. Inflation generally has not run like super, super high over recent years. We're now running higher than that range. But the bank has said it will come back. It has a plan to get it back. Uh, And I think that's what most sort of mainstream economists uh, think is a credible strategy. So, Jason, how is this going to affect government spending, if at all? Um, Are some of the things we were promised this past election going to be curtailed by this or rethought or reconfigured? Because as Murad said, ultimately, inflation is a supply-demand issue. So are we going to be seeing more intervention to maybe encourage people to keep boosting the economy and boosting demand somehow? I'm not sure how much this is going to affect government spending, in part because the liberals haven't seemed very attuned to this issue. You know, they have been talking about affordability, which is, you know, inflation has, you know, has a lot of hooks in affordability because everything is costing more. They're talking about it mostly in the context of housing. And if you look at the components of uh, what is causing inflation, shelter, uh, which is, of course, people's biggest cost, is a huge part of it. Rents are going up. Real estate prices are going up. The cost of mortgages are going up because people own more house now because it's more expensive to service your mortgage. So the liberals are combating that. Um, and that's going to require spending. The other thing, I'll, you know, the federal government wants to do is uh, to stoke productivity, get people working more, producing more widgets uh, for more amounts, because that's how you grow your economy without busting inflation. And that requires that's going to require things like all the innovation and science investing that Murad can tell you way more about than I can. Um, and these economic development agencies they talk about, that's going to require spending on childcare to help boost the workforce um, and also create some childcare jobs. Uh, so those are things that require a lot of government spending and government intervention. It's going to increase government debt too. Well, Chrystia Freeland, our continuing deputy PM and finance minister, she seemed to signal that COVID programs would also be rolling back So will that have any mitigating impact on high inflation at all? It could. You know, one of the reasons that inflation has been quite resilient throughout this is that people have money, that the government's been putting money into people's pockets to make sure they can spend. Uh, Because the thing they really don't want is, uh, you know, the economy and the consumer market to freeze up. And that has downward impacts. And deflation is actually a a very, very big scare, too. A lot of the reason that the central bank and uh, the government kind of in tandem, we're pumping money into our system was to keep things from deflating. Obviously, now we don't need that. And obviously, inflation is more of a concern. So you are seeing uh, the, the federal government taper down the temporary programs, um, and they're going to replace them with long-term programs to support people and to help stoke the economy. 
which aren't as acute, aren't, you know, shoveling billions of dollars into people's bank accounts right away and shoveling billions of dollars into uh, business support programs, making them stand on their own. So those are going to go down. But other spending for other purposes is going to uh, offset a lot of that. Not all of it, but certainly uh, it's, you know, this isn't a government that's in a hurry to uh, get its budget to balance. So, Drew, are you concerned about high inflation? Uh I mean, to a certain extent, like the bank sort of expects the high inflation we're sort of experiencing now is a bit of like a a whiplash from everything that happened last year when the economy kind of like sputtered a little bit. But I mean, 4.5% is on the high end. That's sort of what they expect the average to be this year. They expect it to sort of like gradually decrease down to 3.4% next year and then back within the target range by 2023. Obviously, predicting the future of the world economy in 2021 is kind of a mugs game. What if there's another Suez Canal blockage next year? You know, it's entirely possible, right? There could be more COVID outbreaks. There could be more new horrible shit that happens that we can't even conceive of. But I think... uh, I mean, the other thing, too, is obviously to the extent that um, the problem is on the sort of money supply side, the bank has also indicated that they are willing to start raising interest rates um, sooner than expected, right? Um, Which will sort of like take some of the pressure off the rising inflation as well to kind of like pull back some of the money supply, keep things sort of like level. I was reading earlier that the the bank sort of suggested they might reach like 1% interest by the end of 2022, which is still quite low but a little bit higher, obviously, than what we've been used to for the last year. That also kind of puts the pressure on the the government to maybe sort of be less freewheeling with the spending and debt level. Um, The PBO, I think, estimated that if we go up to 1% interest, uh, that could increase the debt cost by like $4.5 a year, which for the federal government is not necessarily a huge deal. But for certain cash-strapped provinces with crazy debt loads, like the one I'm living in currently, interest rates going up are very terrifying. Mm -hmm. So it all kind of balances out. Between like rising interest rates and like slightly higher than average inflation, I'm more comfortable with the like slightly higher inflation rate on the expectation that it will sort of come back down as things even out. But that is sort of still an open question, right? Well, my understanding is that we haven't had a high inflation problem in several decades. Um, Like all our economies have been just spending a lot. There's a lot of money in our systems. So Murad, are we in unprecedented, unknown territory here? Or or is it as simple as Drew said, where we just ride it out and, and hope that the other end, the inflation rate does drop and prices do eventually drop? And I can stop panicking every time I see the ticker on the gas station near my house, which, you know, crossed 150 last week and I freaked out. 150 is cheap. It's like 160 here. Well, and I think you both illustrated important points about this, which is, you know, it matters what within that basket of goods and services that is measured for inflation is going up, right? Currently, energy or consumer gas is one of the big components. uh, And I think that's why a lot of people are getting hit with sticker shock because they're going to the pump. Um, But inflation rates vary across the country. Basic prices vary across the country already, right? Like food is incredibly expensive in the north, relatively cheap in the south when you compare it to that. So, um, you know, uh, there's definitely a national conversation about inflation, but these regional variations do make a difference and that need to be taken into account. To your question about whether it's unprecedented, there's a lot about the way that monetary policy has shifted both before the pandemic and during the pandemic that is unprecedented. Like the relationship between interest rates and growth and the sort of length of the time at which interest rates have been this low is pretty novel. There's definitely a, a bunch of stuff that's that's kind of being worked out, but I think 
Uh, I wanted to point our listeners to this TikTok that a drag queen uh, named Kanye produced, possibly for the Bank of Canada, uh, which explains uh, how the Bank of Canada thinks about inflation and how it basically pointing out that a lot of this is done in two-year cycles. It's great. The tweet that you can watch it on, the account is online K-Y-N-E, and I would recommend watching it. It's very good. It sounds like we shouldn't be too worried, but just like the right level of worried, which I think we as a country are used to. <laughs> but uh, Murad, I do want to talk uh, quickly about the bond buying. Earlier, you also brought up the point that the Bank of Canada is going to ease up on buying government bonds. Is that going to make a difference to our economy at all? And can you break that down for us? Probably not. You know, the bank holds a lot of government debt. Now the the amount has increased significantly during the pandemic, and presumably they're going to sell quite a lot of that back into the market over time. Deputy Prime Minister did signal, as she was talking about sort of pulling back on some of the pandemic spending programs, that they are thinking a lot or focusing now on sort of restrained or efficient support. A lot of this is sort of a confidence game, right? It signals to the market about how much they should believe in Canada's fiscal trajectory and and its intentions. So clearly, whether it's because of this set of factors, as I've seen some people posit, or just the timing, you know, we're getting to sort of late... Uh, it occurs to me that I was about to say we're getting to the end of the pandemic, and that <laughs> definitely would have cursed us for uh, several more months. Don't but say these things. As the economy continues to recover and employment gets back closer to pre-pandemic levels, let's put it that way, uh, the amount of stimulus required starts to recede. So all of this is to say the government doesn't seem incredibly worried at this point, and the bank does have a focus on ensuring that growth continues. If those two sort of... Uh, uh, polls are, or you know, institutions are getting it right, which I think we all have to hope that they are, then I don't think there's a huge cause for concern. Hope is the imperative word here, right? <laughs> so is that the silver lining then, that maybe inflation is a sign of post-pandemic economic activity? That's part of it. I feel like I'm more worried about inflation or I'm more pessimistic about uh, inflation impacts than Murat or Drew because it basically means that everything overall costs nearly 5% more than it did last year. Mm -hmm. And wages have not increased the same level. So for an awful lot of people, they are spending more uh, without having more. And that is a problem. That is a social problem for society and an economic and real problem for a lot of people. Food bank usage is up. It costs a lot for a lot of particular groceries, especially dairy products and meat meat and poultry. Uh, that's, you know, very expensive. Uh, it's trickling into other products as well. You know, we are still a fossil fuel reliant, driving reliant uh, society. And so some people cannot as easily cope with uh, the increase in, in fuel prices. And everybody, if especially if this is a very cold winter, is going to be spending a whole lot more on utilities, on power and heating. And that is going to cause some people to, you know, have a decision. Do they let their utility bills go or do they scrimp elsewhere? Mm -hmm. This is a social problem. And because we are not used to this problem, because we are used to just having more and more stuff coming in at more and more cheap prices, kind of this Walmart Costco effect, people are not used to having, um, you know, years of 3%, 4% inflation. We haven't had that on a regular basis um, since the, you know, like early 90s. Uh, where we've had this level of inflation for a prolonged period as we are. And then on the back end of this, if if the Bank of Canada does work to combat inflation with interest rates, 
as Murad and Drew both said, like, we've been living on cheap debt. Mm-hmm. The whole mortgage boom, the whole real estate boom uh, that happened uh, over the last year and a half has been premised on it being incredibly cheap to borrow. So if it's suddenly more expensive to borrow, and again, if wages don't increase at a, at a steady level and if productivity and other things don't improve on a steady level, higher debt costs is going to cause a lot of problems for a lot of struggling businesses, for struggling individuals, and struggling governments who are now burdened with a much greater debt. Okay, as always, there's too much going on in Canadian politics, so we're going to have a quick rapid-fire round in which everyone has to answer in 17 words or less, because apparently 17 is the number Backbench likes today. (laughs) Last Friday, the government decided to appeal the federal court case that ruled they have to compensate Indigenous children in welfare. Within an hour, new Indigenous Services Minister Patty Haidu issued a statement saying they would pause the appeal and reiterated the Liberals' commitment to compensation for First Nations children on reserve, reform the First Nations Child and Family Services Program. She promised funding for capital assets that would support the Jordan's principle. Are these not just completely contradictory actions? How are we supposed to make any sense of this? Is there some legal technicality I don't understand where the government can pause an appeal and also promise a bunch of commitments? It all boils down to this fact. The government of Canada wants reconciliation and justice for Indigenous children, but in its own goddamn terms. Murad, the new foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, did not attend the G20 summit in Rome this past weekend. Instead, Christia Freeland did. Meanwhile, Trudeau said that Canada wanted a much stronger and more ambitious climate agreement than the one that was agreed upon on Sunday. Do we think he'll have the clout to change minds at the climate conference? Like, the G20 includes India and China. Uh, I think there's a reason that if those stronger standards weren't uh, put in place, I think uh, you can see which part of the world that's coming from. But I'm going to throw the plug in here, which is that my colleague Catherine McIntyre is at COP26 covering all of this and knows so much more about it than I do. And Drew, the Liberal caucus has been complaining about the lack of meetings since the election ended. It took six weeks to schedule one for November 8th. Many backbenchers report being unclear about what the F is going on. Meanwhile, there's potentially a deal in the making between the Liberals and the NDP that could allow the government to go three years without a non-confidence vote. What's your read? Is the Liberal government off to a great start? (laughs) It's always rough when you call that election before everyone gets their pension, right? So uh, I think they'll have a pleasant airing of grievances next week. If they manage to secure a deal where they don't have to go back into an election cycle until at least three years, I think uh, everybody involved will be at least as reasonably happy as you're going to be. On that note, let's adjourn. That's The Backbench. We're back to our regular programming. We'll see you again in two weeks. We released an amazing bonus episode last week, our off week, where our backbenchers comment on what they thought of the front bench, aka the new federal cabinet. Please consider supporting us to listen to that, especially if you've been liking our work so far. We just need you to keep sending your questions, your concerns, your rants. Hit like wherever you listen to us. Our email is backbench at candleland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can read my work at The Narwhal. Where can people find you? Murad, where are you? Uh, I'm at thelogic.co and on Twitter at M-U-R-A-D-H-E-M. Jason, where are you? McLean's.ca, but still mostly Alberta. Um, and uh, on Twitter far too often at Markasoff. And Drew, where can the good people find you? You can find me at theindependent.ca and on Twitter at Drewfinland, which is like the name of the <laughs> island, but with my name there also. <laughs> 
This episode was produced by Tiffany Lam with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Althorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thank you for listening. See you again soon. Thank you.